Hello and welcome to The Wire, your independent national coverage over current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Amina Shakur coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. And later on the show... It's critical that people have appropriate support to allow them to rebuild their lives, having been detained without justification um, by the Australian government. 80 people have been freed after the High Court rules indefinite immigration detention unlawful. Inflation sparks cost of living with concerns for an increase in interest rates. And later today... Uh, It's absolutely horrendous to see they suffer terribly and if it's left untreated they actually die of this disease within about two to three months of getting it. 90% of the wombat population faces severe threat from a parasite disease. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. The release of 80 people from Australian detentions comes after the groundbreaking High Court decision on November 9, declaring indefinite immigration detention in Australia unlawful. The ruling overturns a 20-year-old president and could lead to the release of 12 more people, casting doubt on the detention of 340 others, with far-reaching implications for future detention management. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre calls for an immediate release of all individuals subjected to years of inhumane treatment. The Australian government, which detains individuals for an average of 708 days, now faces pressure to act swiftly and address the conditions faced by detainees. I spoke to Hannah Dickinson, Principal Solicitor at Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, about the support the detainees will be getting after their release. Well, you can imagine how difficult it would be after such a long period in detention, separated from family, often without hope and typically not receiving adequate medical treatment, to then suddenly be released. You might not know how to use technology, the latest technology. You might have difficulties um, navigating. Uh, You've probably got serious um, health concerns arising from your detention. It's critical that people have appropriate support to allow them to rebuild their lives, having been detained without justification um, by the Australian government. And that needs to look like secure and stable housing. It needs to look like um, appropriate support for basic needs, and it needs to include access to appropriate healthcare services, um, allowing people to address any issues that might have developed for them. And um, how many people could be immediately affected by the High Court decision and what does that mean for the future of the detention management in in Australia? There's a lot we still don't know because the High Court hasn't yet provided its reasons for the order it made. Our expectation is that more people than those initially released will be impacted by the decision in one way or another. We're certainly hopeful that that's the case. Many other refugees in detention who are in similar circumstances. Uh, As soon as it's clear uh, what the High Court's reasons are, there will no doubt be um, action to assist those people um, and to better understand what the next steps are. But two things are very likely. That reform is required because much of Australia's system is built around an acceptance that indefinite detention was permissible, so there, there will be that change required. And, and secondly, we hope to see more humanity in the way that people are treated. We, what the High Court has essentially said is we no longer lock up people and throw away the key. 
before we had a law that applied differently to non-citizens and and that's not appropriate. Everybody should have the same right to be free of detention without justification. And what challenges have uh, individuals in immigration detention faced? Every day our teams see people who have been detained for years on end, um, over 10 years, and in that time um, they may have missed birthdays of their children, uh, deaths of their parents. Um, They might have become so unwell because of the hopeless detention they found themselves in that they lose capacity. People with disabilities, people with severe mental health conditions, um, we've seen people become unable to care for themselves, unable to speak. The distress, I've, I've seen no match to the distress people in detention experience. And indefinite detention is a big part of that. And that's why it's broadly recognised what was a breach of a person's human rights. And so when we see releases from detention in this case and in others, we see just the most extraordinary joy and relief. And at the moment, our clients are you know, sending us pictures with their families as they reunite after so long. And there's such hope and such weariness and also a degree of caution because it has been a very difficult area with lots of legal change. And so there is a trepidation that something will... Uh, that perhaps it's too good to be true. So it's quite a remarkable time um, for people being released from detention and for those remaining in detention without, at this stage, answers about how they might be impacted. And what specific actions is the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, I guess, urging the Australian government to take following the um, High Court's decision? Well, the first is meaningful reform. Um, We were very pleased to see that the government acted quickly to enact the High Court's orders and that was was encouraging. There are many more who may well be impacted and there are also laws that are going to need to change to reflect uh, the High Court's decision. Those things are critical and in particular, for the last two decades, Australia's system of mandatory and indefinite detention has um, descended into crisis and and into cruelty and this is, this is the moment now to end that. In a statement by Minister for Immigration, Citizenship and Multicultural Affairs, Andrew Giles says, We are considering the implications of the judgment carefully and will continue to work with authorities to ensure community safety is upheld. The plaintiff has been released as ordered by the High Court. Other impacted individuals will be released and any visas granted to those individuals will be subjected to appropriate conditions. Principal Solicitor at Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, Hannah Dickinson, reassures the public the government is taking all the risk assessments and now is a time to focus on celebrating this momentous High Court outcome. Australia has numerous systems in place to manage risk that apply to citizens and non-citizens alike. Uh, Any suggestions otherwise, I think, are misleading. And we just remind those concerned of those structures um, that are what we rely on as appropriate in in every case for every person in Australia. I can um, definitely sense your passion um, in this, (laughs) in the way you speak, in your, your emotions. Um, I really appreciate your work. and um... That was Hannah Dickinson, Principal Solicitor at Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, speaking to The Wire.
The consumer price index has risen according to new data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which means inflation is back on the agenda yet again. With inflation comes added cost of living to average Australians who are also under pressure from the Reserve Bank and their hikes on interest rates. To make sense of the economic weight engulfing the nation, economist and author Tim Harcourt speaks with The Wire's Gabriel D'Angelo. A recent report says that inflation was higher than expected in the last quarter. How did that happen? Well, I think it's partly to do with international events, particularly in the Middle East and the impact of the Hamas-Israel war on energy prices. But also there was some pressure in Australia Uh, particularly in services prices that perhaps we didn't expect. How does inflation affect the cost of living standards and house prices for ordinary Australians? Well, inflation is the rate at which prices accelerate and that feeds into the cost of living. So everything you're paying for from groceries to petrol uh, to interest rates, that means uh, you're paying more and maybe wages aren't keeping up. So that will make you worse off. And ultimately, um, interest rates are sort of the price of borrowing for a house. Uh, So interest rates can affect not only the cost of borrowing for you, but also uh, they tend to influence the rate at which uh, house prices increase. This may be a hard question to answer, but how can inflation be dealt with? Traditionally, um, we use things in the Hawke government, like the Accord with the trade unions, where we made sure that uh, wages grew at a proper rate in the economy, Uh, Now we don't have that and um, we've sort of relied on the Reserve Bank just to put up interest rates, which is really only one instrument that's quite a blunt instrument. So really the government has to think of federally doing things at the fiscal level with respect to expenditure and taxes and not leave it to the poor old Reserve Bank to do all the heavy lifting by putting up interest rates, which creates a lot of pain for people with mortgages. Do you believe the current government is doing a good job in trying to tackle inflation? I think they could do more, given the traditional Labor Party links with the ACTU. I think they could do more something in the Hawke uh, Hawk Keating uh, tradition, where perhaps you look at uh, taxes, childcare, dental care, healthcare, Medicare, and see if you can come up with a package that improves people's lives while taking a bit of steam out of, uh, out of inflation. You've mentioned the Hawke-Keating governments of the past. Do you believe that they had the best approach or were there other governments that you thought had a a really good idea in terms of tackling inflation? I thought they were really good in the sense that we had really high inflation in the 70s and 80s and they broke the the back of it. Um, And other governments have done important things. Uh, The Howard government introduced the GST and that was an important tax reform and uh, governments in the past have also done that. But I think you need a combination of fiscal policy, monetary policy and incomes policy with the trade unions and the employers. I don't think you can just have one policy, interest rates, to tackle inflation. It's, uh, it's too narrow, I think. The Reserve Bank of Australia has been in the spotlight recently. How did they decide and adjust interest rates? Well, they have an inflation target of 2 to 3% over the, over the cycle. That's their job. Uh, it's pretty clear in their, in their charter. So whether it be Philip Lowe or Michelle Bullock, um, they feel it's their job to get inflation under control and they will adjust interest rates accordingly. And anything to do with taxes or spending or fiscal policy, they just believe that's not their job. Do the RBA's decisions on interest rates have any effect regarding inflation? Look, 
Look, I, I, I think so. I think what the Reserve Bank says it will do and, and, and won't do affects markets and affects how, how banks respond with respect to interest rates. I think Philip Lowe, the previous governor, made the mistake of saying that rates wouldn't go up the next couple of years and really you can't make that prediction. Um, he probably should have couched it a little bit more carefully. You mentioned trade unions and not a lot of people talk about unions when discussing inflation, but what role does the trade union movement have in regards to the way governments handle inflation? Well, when trade union membership was a lot more higher, more powerful, they used to make a lot of wage claims and that could feed into wage price inflation. Um, and what the Hawke government did was to say, well, we don't want any more wage price inflation. We'll give you tax cuts, we'll give you super, we'll give you Medicare. We want you to reduce your, your nominal wage claims. So in terms of your living standards, you'll be better off because suddenly you've got Medicare and you've got superannuation for your retirement and you've got more money in your pocket from tax relief, uh, but you're not making the same wage claims. So in a way, that side of the equation has sort of been a bit neglected in the last, uh, last few years. Where do you personally assess interest rates and inflation going in the not-too-distant future? I think... Um, the IMF and the RBA itself says that the back of inflation has been broken, but it's uh, going to take a little bit longer than they thought. Um, and if that's the case, then um, we might see some downward pressure on interest rates, or at least having them form steady. I'm more worried that there might be a, a, a slowdown in the world economy because China's not doing so well and because of the impact of the Hamas-Israel war and the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, which is continuing. That was Tim Harcourt, economist and author, speaking to The Wire. Wombat's populations are under threat from a parasitic disease caused by mites. Scarcoptic mangy is estimated to affect up to 90% of wild wombat population across Australia. And now that there's a new treatment to cure the condition called Brevito. The Wise contributor from Tune FM, Ben Lewis, asked programs manager for Wise, Christy Newton, how Scarcoptic mangy affects wombats. It is caused by a parasitic mite. They burrow under the wombat skin and lay eggs, and that causes a skin disease. Um, they lose all their fur. They get really, really crusted, dry skin, which which ends up in open wounds, they get secondary infection. When it gets quite severe, they actually lose their ability to see and hear properly because the skin crusts over their eyes and ears. Uh, it's absolutely horrendous to see. They suffer terribly. And if it's left untreated, they actually die of this disease within about two to three months of getting it. So what makes the disease so prevalent? Unfortunately for wombats, they just have this perfect set of living conditions that the mite loves. So these specific mites are actually found in over 100 mammal species around the world, but they just really, the wombats, they just affect them so badly because they love the temperature and the conditions of wombat burrows. So they can actually live in the soil, in the, in the burrow walls for about three weeks without even a live host. So wombats go into a burrow, the mites jump on them, they get infected, they go back out of the burrow, they come into contact with the number one, another wombat, the mite jumps from one wombat to another, and they also burrow share. So once it's in a local community of wombats, it just spreads like wildfire. And if it lives for three, like you said, three weeks, it's fairly difficult to eradicate then if it can just lay around for, for such a long period of time, just waiting for a new wombat to come in and pick it up again. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where we've struggled with treatments in the past. They've killed 
the living mites that may be on the wombats, but they haven't been able to stop the life cycle of the mites. So we'll treat them and then they'll, they'll um, get reinfected quite quickly. Where Brevecto is so beneficial in that area because it kills the eggs as well and stops that life cycle. So we know to not only treat that wombat within sort of one to three doses, they're looking so much better and they're on the road to recovery. We know that they'll be safe for at least, you know, a fair few months um, before they're exposed to that risk again. Well, that's good. That was actually going to be my next question into the actual treatment <laughs> process of uh, into the actual the actual treating treatment process. So I'm I'm glad that it's not a, a not an overtly I guess strenuous or difficult treatment to once they've obviously found and once wise um, I guess have them in their in their care. Well, it is strenuous. I'm so sorry, Ben. I may have led you down the, the wrong path on that. It is- even though Revecto is, we only need a few treatments, it's still really actually quite difficult to treat them. We don't bring them into care. We actually treat them out in the wild. We're relying on volunteers going out and traping through the, you know, the wilderness to try and locate burrows and these animals, and they have to actually get that treatment them on directly onto their back, which is very difficult, or to actually treat their burrows. So um, it's it's a lot of hands-on work, um, often over over quite a few months. Is there a particular area of New South Wales where this particular sarcoptic range is more prevalent or is it just found absolutely everywhere? There are definitely hotspots. Central, like all the Central West region, they seem to be really, really suffering out there. Down in the Illawarra, there are huge hotspots and down south of Sydney in the Wollandilly areas. You do get them up your way. And I think once it, as I said, like once it gets into a population, the entire conservation of that population is in trouble. So we've heard about what the disease is and now we'll look towards what now. So what exactly needs to be done and can be done to combat this particular disease? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, awareness, absolutely number one. We need to we need more people to know about it. We need more people reporting wombats and hopefully more people wanting to join us to treat. Um, Wise has an amazing program called the Community Mange Treatment Program where you don't have to become a member of a, a wildlife rehabilitation group. There's no expectation on you to take any animals into care. You can just get out there in your local area and treat wombats in your community. Um, you can go on our website for more information about that, but also So as you mentioned, if you're not in a position to help us on the ground, you can always donate, um, whether that's through Pet Circle this month by purchasing Provecto or just donating to any of the main programs around. Um, It really, really helps us. Treatment is quite expensive and we appreciate all the help we can get. So where can Australians go to find out more and support the cause if they do want to go down the road of donating or just um, purchasing a Provecto product this month? Yeah, absolutely. So go to Pet Circle online um, and you can you can donate on there. There'll be some um, little tiles and some advertisements that you can click on. So any Brevecto product will go to helping wombats with mange. If you want to find any, any more information about mange in general or how to help us and get on the ground, um, you can go to wires.org.au. Program Manager for Wires, Christy Newton, there speaking with Tune FM's Ben Lewis. A new event in December is bringing together non-binary and transgender artists into one stage. The event called Transgenre is an event offering representation in live music scene, showcasing transgender and non-binary voices. The Wires contributor from Tune FM, Ash Taylor, spoke with music journalist Ella Robinson and singer Tim Blunt and asked them what inspired them to start this festival. I think 
you know, Ellie and I both probably set like separately as kids and as young people growing up. And, you know, up until today, I've spent so much time lamenting, I guess, the, you know, how limited the representation is for trans and non-binary artists in Australian music and music generally. But yeah, particularly on festival lineups, I remember it was so significant the first time that I saw being at the Big Day Out and seeing Against Me play and seeing Laura Jane Grace up there. Mm-hmm. And it was really like such a pivotal moment for me personally in finally being able to recognize, yeah, myself in in someone up on a stage like that. I think too, it's really important that, you know, when we were starting to put this festival together, there were a lot of, you know, a lot of anti-trans sentiment in the news and bills restricting healthcare for trans individuals in the United States, reports of like, you know, up to seven year waits for NHS back services in the UK, things like that. And, you know, in March, there was an anti-trans rally in, in Melbourne, which was a whole thing. But I think we kind of agreed that we really needed something positive and, and something that would sort of galvanize our community and show that there is like a positive we can band together and why was it important that it was a, a music festival and not just a get-together or a, or a con or something like that? I think it was important that Transgenre is a music festival because it's something that's accessible to a lot more people. Um, you know, it's not just trans people or, or, you know, not just this, like, microcosm of our community that we're inviting into this space. It's, you know, everyone that wants to connect with the trans community and, and everyone that wants to you know, broaden their horizons to, to see new artists and see new types of artists that they, you know, might not have been aware of before. We're hearing a lot of people say that they're excited for this festival because they don't recognise a lot of the names on this bill or, you know, it's a new thing for them. And, and, and we think that, you know, having it be a festival like this, it's something that, you know, the concept of a music festival, most people have been to a music festival, most people know what to expect. Has there been much pushback from the wider community? Shockingly, no. There's been like a couple of naff comments on like social media being like, you know, it's excluding cis or straight people or whatever. But, you know, they miss the point. They don't get what we're doing. Uh, Aside from those like outlier situations, we've received like overwhelming support, which has been kind of surprising, but just really, really like life affirming and, and exciting for sure. So what are your hopes for the future of the festival? Our hope for the festival is that, um, you know, it, it goes ahead smoothly. There are minimal hiccups, minimal roadblocks, and it's an easy breezy, super fun day and goes on to be the first of many events, not just the first of many transgenres, but the first of many concerts that we're hoping to hold all around Australia. We're sort of treating this festival as sort of like a pilot mm-hmm. event, so to speak, just to see whether we can do it, really and um, see what the demand is and see what kind of culture we can cultivate. So would you be treating it as an introduction to, to new artists or would you, you know, aim for some wider non-Australian artists like getting Kim Petras in, for example, or Sam Smith? We would absolutely love things like that. We've been talking about, you know, if we got the funding or we recently got some some shout-out from Sydney Mardi Gras and we've had a bit of support from some organizations that we never thought would even like recognize us. So we're starting to think about, you know, the more ambitious things we can do. And, you know, if we, if we had the budget, who would we bring over from overseas, you know, mm-hmm. we're hoping to hold events all over the country. The one that we're, we're planning another event sort of starting to like very like early days kind of thing. And we're planning it for here in Nam Melbourne. And we have like ideas for, you know, what kind of bands and artists we could get for shows in Kern or Adelaide, Minge and Brisbane, you know, 
all over the shop. Even even Awakabal Newcastle or, you know, a little further south, Tharawal Wollongong. So many cool places and, and so many cool artists that we can bring in and, and do these kinds of celebrations nationwide, hopefully. Transgenre organisers Ellie Robinson and Tim Blunt there, ending the story by Tune FM's Ash Taylor. For more information about the event, you can go to our website, thewire.org.au. And unfortunately, that's the end of today's show. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 3ZZZ in Melbourne, 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane. With the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Kula Nations where the program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. I'm Amina Shakur coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on the wire.